Welcome back to the Resurrection Church Podcast, week 39 of reading through the Bible in a year alongside Jesus. We are in Isaiah today for our Old Testament passage. Uh, We're going to be knocking out about 31 chapters of it, so quite a large chunk, a lot to consider, Um, a lot of back and forth. There is... How long is this book? uh, 66 chapters. Ooh, okay. Thanks. Okay, so not even half. So, yeah, almost half, but not quite. Close. So, you know, good amount of judgment. Uh, I felt like this, uh, at least 31 chapters we read, had a good amount of, uh, you know, wrath and fire and brimstone. There were uh, very positive spots of love and mercy and the Lord uh, dealing graciously with folks. What, what, What are all your thoughts on Isaiah? I know you have a lot of them. Yeah, well, maybe I can start us out then with a few grounding ideas as we approach the book of Isaiah. First, I want to point out that the book is not a biography. So someone might think if they're reading Isaiah, as our British friends say, that the book will be about this guy, Isaiah, but it's not really about Isaiah. Instead, this book is probably better thought of as an anthology of Isaiah's sermons. So this is not everything that Isaiah ever said, but it's probably the best of what Isaiah ever said in his preaching prophetic ministry. So it's like his greatest hits album. Yeah, I think so. So if you can imagine how long this book is, think about everything else that he preached. Uh, prophets, of course, do predict the future, but more commonly, they critique the present through their preaching. And that's what a lot of Isaiah is doing here. So you can imagine these individuals who are led by God to collect Isaiah's writings. And I think we should keep saying Isaiah because that sounds more scholarly. And this is a very scholarly guy. Um, I mean, if you think about, like, by the time I die, if if you if someone wanted the best of my sermons, there would be a good amount there. Uh, but then you'd be faced with the question of how do you arrange them? Do you arrange them according to the chronology of my life or how they were preached? Or do you do it by theme or passage or something else? And I think that's uh, part of the challenge with reading Isaiah is that the arrangement of this anthology of predictions and preaching is not necessarily chronological. It's more based on theme. Um, So if you've ever looked in our hymnals that we don't really use at our church, we have a hymnal, I think, somewhere. You know how the songs are sometimes uh, correlated by theme? So you'll have all the Christmas songs or all the Easter songs. Well, there are overlapping themes sometimes, so the arrangement doesn't quite always fit perfectly But I think it works well enough when we start talking about the arrangement of Isaiah to split it into three sections. So we could take chapters 1 through 39, and everything that's in here has happened already during Isaiah's lifetime. So if you remember back from when we read through 1 Kings, or 2 Kings, sorry, in chapter 19, Isaiah, this guy is referenced. So what's going on in chapters 1 through 39 is a prophetic critique of Israel during Isaiah's lifetime. And then when you get to chapters 40 through 55, you get a prediction of the exile. 
And you can imagine that his preaching about a future exile wasn't very popular because when he was alive, it seemed like Israel's in charge. Things are good, more or less. Um, And then chapters 56 through 66 are pretty much predictively describing the return from exile. So he's talking about all the problems in his day, the judgment of exile that will result from them, and then a future return and restoration that will be bigger than what they would have expected because it includes not only Israel, but all of the nations. So that's kind of a general framework. So everything that we're reading is pretty much Isaiah's critique of Israel in his lifetime in in our section. We're reading through chapter 31. But um, within those three major sections, we could double-click on there, and we could get into some more uh, detailed parts. So in chapters 1 through 6, there's kind of just this introduction, and it begins the prophetic critique of Israel. uh, But... As he gets in there, when he gets to chapter 6, he pauses and weeps because he's part of Israel. He has a heart for his people. He wants them to repent and return to the Lord. Uh, But then in chapter 7 through 12, there's a description and critique of King Ahaz, this faithless king, and Israel, who is faithless following his rule. And then in chapters 13 through 23, there are oracles of judgment against all of the nations. Uh, sometimes because Israel turns to those nations to find provision and rest in them, other times because of the way they relate to Israel negatively, because of their own pride and arrogance, are oracles of judgment against them. And then as you move on to chapters 24 through 27, there's a description of like a little apocalypse of God's judgment that's going to happen on all of his enemies. And then even more devastatingly, in chapters 28 through 35, you get woes, oracles of judgment against Israel for their sin. Uh, So that's problematic and unpopular because nobody wants themselves to be judged. They're okay if other nations are. Um, And then when you get to chapters 35 through 39, it centers on Hezekiah, the almost faithful king. So he's not totally faithful, but he's almost faithful. So this is everything in Isaiah's life in the first major chunk of the book. Then chapters 40 to 43, there's this transition where Yahweh is positioned as the solution to all of Israel's problems. Not Egypt that they were going to find refuge in, no one else. It'll be Yahweh alone. And then in chapters 44 through 53, you have like this battle between the Lord's servant and the idol or or the city of man. And ultimately, we know that the servant depicted there will be fulfilled fully and finally in Jesus. And then chapters 54 through 63 talk about the restoration of Israel, but not only Israel, of all people. And then 65 and 66 is like a recap summary of everything that's happened. So you see judgment and restoration like in a grand finale at the end of Isaiah. So this book has a lot of information. Hopefully that breakdown will help us as we read different parts of it to know where we're at in the book. Um, And then as we think about the New Testament and the way that the New Testament uses Isaiah, we we see the Messiah really predicted, especially in that second part, in, in the final parts of Isaiah, even though there are some hints about it earlier on. So the Messiah is so clearly depicted in this book that it's sometimes referred to as a fifth gospel, which is saying something. 
you know, a lot, there's Jesus shows up in a lot of the Old Testament, but the New Testament authors quote Isaiah over more than any other book, I think. Um, and the reason they can do so is because of what John says in John twelve forty one that Isaiah says these things because he saw the glory of the Lord. Uh, he saw his glory, ultimately God's glory that would be made known in Jesus. Was that chapter six where he kind of has that encounter with God and he feels kind of unworthy and then they put burning coals on his lips and he's forgiven? That that was interesting. What was that? Yeah, he has a either a vision or something like that where he's before the Lord receiving this word of judgment and he realizes he's a part of this. Uh, he's a man of unclean lips, so to speak, among a people with unclean lips, people who are worshiping false gods, who are giving a like tacit recognition of their God while not following him with their actions. He sees the holiness and splendor of God, and he knows that he can't stand before that God unless God acts as his solution. And it's like this burning coal represents the holiness of God that is gifted to him, um, even though he doesn't deserve it. And it, it almost pictures the future restoration of Israel that will be talked about later in the book, where they don't deserve this, but God is going to cleanse them and make them holy and allow them to speak of his glory so that all the nations and people will be drawn in. Ironically, though, after this cleansing, the the words that he's commissioned to speak are not going to be heard. They're going to serve to harden the hearts of his listeners, not to actually draw them to repentance. Which is, you know, I don't. Did, did you guys ever listen to Patch the Pirate? Yeah. There, there was a song, Hear My Lord, Send Me. I will serve you faithfully, hear my Lord send me. We would sing that all the time. But if you actually read Isaiah 6, what Isaiah is being sent to do is to preach in a way that will harden people's hearts, which will lead to the exile. So it's probably fine for us to sing songs like that. Um, But it does make it hard to understand what's going on in that text when you have that language so embedded in your mind as let me go be a missionary and speak the prophetic word of God so that everyone will respond when Isaiah is going to go do that so that everyone's hearts will be hardened. You were allowed to listen to Patch the Pirate? That's all we were allowed to listen to. Oh, wow. I'm a little surprised. Why? It's kind of edgy. He's got like a patch and stuff. He kind of looks like Captain Hook, well, who's evil. Yeah. I mean, it is a little ironic that that's the image that was taken on. Like is a the conservative Christian kid's hero was a pirate, right. but he did he was a pirate for the Lord, right. I'm sure. Because he had like an eye issue, he had his eye removed, didn't he? Yeah, I mean, I was I would say that for those of us who are studying James in our sermon series, Isaiah chapter one sounds a lot like James. You know, so for example, Isaiah one sixteen. He says, wash yourselves, cleanse yourselves, remove your evil deeds from my sight, stop doing evil, pursue justice, correct the oppressor, defend the rights of the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Then verse 21, the faithful town, what an adulteress she has become. All of these things are things that James takes up where he talks about true religion, which is taking care of the fatherless and the widow, uh, 
He calls people to humble themselves and cleanse their hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded. He refers to them as adulteresses. So a lot of the language of Isaiah 1 is echoed in James. It's just often filtered through the sayings of Jesus. One somewhat common theme, or maybe not even a theme, but just a point I noticed uh, throughout a decent amount of our passage today was the number of times um, arrogance, haughtiness, pride is referenced and how uh, those that are proud and haughty will be humbled and they will be brought low. And I was just thinking about that a lot because that's a fairly common thing in the Bible that gets mentioned all the time where God mentions it about how he opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. I don't know. I just try to think about that a lot because I'm like, if there's one surefire way to have God not be on your side, it's to be proud about yourself and trusting in yourself or whatever. And it just puts a wedge between you and God like immediately. Yeah. And interestingly, the primary way that pride is displayed, at least in the first chapters of Isaiah, is through oppressing the poor. It God cares a lot about the poor. That comes through over and over again in Isaiah. And it's these prideful people who are um, oppressing them. So I think that's probably good for us to think about a little bit. You know, God hates pride and often will apply that only in terms of, well, I just shouldn't be boastful about myself. But in Isaiah, it's very often connected to the way that we treat other people, both with our words and um, with our relationship to the poor. So I don't know what you guys thought about that or if that stood out to you at all, but God is over and over again demanding justice and humility. Yeah, anytime that you act in a way that you think you're better than somebody else, really, which obviously would be oppressing the poor or, you know, probably a bunch of other things that I'm not thinking of. AJ, what are some examples of pride? What are your favorite what are your favorite ones to do? I like the humble brag. Mm. Oh no, I've got to do all this work. I'm such an I'm in charge of all these these important things. It's it's such a burden. It's like no. You're just lifting yourself up. Right. Oh man, That's my true. kids made honor roll. Like it's such a tr- you know, chore I have to, to, to bring them to school, so yeah. Much. It's like I got to stay on them. It's like, "Oh, you're just saying your kids made honor roll." All right. <laughs> that's the way I I typically think of it, and I think that's what Aaron was getting at is it's a lot of times you don't make those connections that the Bible is, is, is pointing out. Even at the beginning of Isaiah, it's just like, hey, listen up, watch out, pay attention. When Aaron was making the connection before, I think in the sermon, we were talking about wisdom connected to gentleness. That's mm-hmm. not something, that's not a connection I've ever made before. And that was new to me. I think just learn more and more about things that just, you know, blind to make sense, but just have never thought about before. Yeah, I think that James connection, the the wisdom that comes or the gentleness that comes from wisdom. That's that's not often what we would say wisdom gives us. We'd say it gives us savvy or credibility or whatever it might be, but he talks about Christ-like gentleness. And I think the same is true in our in our pride, in our arrogance. We try to replace God. We'll talk about this that this coming week in James, or there are people who are judging one another and they're setting themselves up over God's word. 
and saying God's commands don't really matter. And I think that's kind of what's going on in Isaiah as well, is there are people who are saying, we don't care that God cares about the poor and has instituted laws so that we will too. We only care about ourselves. So all of these images of people who are drinking all the time and feasting and rejoicing, they are taking all the wealth of their society to themselves and ignoring God's laws for the poor. And they'll even rewrite laws. They'll re... I don't know how to say that. They'll rewrite laws. Nailed it. Thank you. They'll rewrite laws that um, discriminate against the poor. And God hates that. So in chapter 10, he says, Woe to those enacting crooked statutes and writing oppressive laws to keep the poor from getting a fair trial and to deprive the needy among my people of justice so that widows can be their spoil and they can plunder the fatherless. I, I think that that's our society. We construct laws to do the exact same thing. Now, it's challenging because we're not a theocracy, but Christians, I think, have adopted the prideful ways of the world when they look at the fatherless and the poor and um, are happy to support politicians who will write crooked statutes. So I think the calculus of how to write legislation to bring about the good is tough. You know, there are different strategies of how you get this done. But what shouldn't be complicated is that when the poor can't get a, a fair trial or in the needy are deprived of justice, I think that's a problem. You know, but that's our natural bent as humans is to uh, measure people's worth according to their wealth. So if a poor person um, commits a crime, they're probably going to get convicted beyond what they should. You know, the punishment will even be greater than what they probably deserve. A really wealthy person can get the hotshot lawyer and pull the strings and get out of whatever that punishment would be. And when there's a society that's structured that way, that's not the way God wants it to be. So we can say, yeah, it's complicated to know how to get society the right way, but... I don't know that I often hear Christians saying things like this. Woe to the people who are in favor of a society where the wealthy can get away with crimes and poor will be unduly punished for them. I don't know. Maybe I'm talking to the wrong people, though. I never thought about that, but I mean, that's true. Yeah, the super rich people, they always find a way to like weasel out of <clears throat> punishment when they do something bad or at least get it greatly reduced because mm-hmm. they have the experts that know how to work the loopholes or, you know, muddy stuff up. And if you don't have means, you're just going to be toast. Yeah. yeah. So that's true. That's more on a societal level. Yep. It's and like, it, what do you do? Yeah, I don't know. It is hard to know all the time what to do about it. But I think part of Christian witness is saying these things should not be this way. Even if we are really not in a Christian nation like Israel was, a God nation, a theocracy, right? Um, we don't have God's anointed king as our the ruler of our land, so we can't maybe take all the same measures they could, but we can say, this is a problem. God doesn't like that. And it's particularly problematic if there are Christians in a church who are committing evils 
and pridefully saying, well, it doesn't matter because even if I get caught, I can get away with it or I, I can get my lawyer to get me through this loophole. Like we should be able to condemn those things. I don't know. What do you guys think? Yeah. Is this getting too uncomfortable for you, AJ, as our podcast producer? Ooh. No. Didn't you say that the people in James, they were committing murders or something? Or they weren't? I'm saying they weren't. They weren't. Yeah. I was like, that would be strange. Paul's be like, stop committing the murders. Come on. Yeah, just one line. Probably would have. On murder. Maybe would have written a little bit more on that if that Probably. actually happened. Yeah. No, I was deflecting. How that work? <laughs> I could tell. <laughs> no, I don't know what else to do. Like, is that what we're called to do is just, whoa, this is not good. Like, God doesn't like this. I, mean, I don't know what else. Like, yeah. what are we be outraged when some rich person gets off or when some unknown poor person gets convicted? I guess I don't pay attention enough to. So I hesitate to even offer opinion because I. Yeah. And I'm not saying that every Christian should become political candidates to like get in there and write different legislation or something. But I think um, we should be able to adopt the values of God and speak clearly about what God values, even if we realize that in this phase of redemption and in a particular political system, Christians might have more or less influence on what actually comes out in our national legislation. Um, So Christians living in a, I don't know, monarchy somewhere else should still be able to say this clearly, even though they're not the ones who have any impact on what those laws will be directly through voting or something like that. But through witness, I think that we do have some measure of influence. And it might help us start, you know, try to solve the problems in different ways. So taking concern for the poor who are like being mistreated. Well, not everyone can do that to the same extent or the same way. But when we run into somebody who needs help, we know that God has a heart for the poor. And so we should try to help them. Does that, I don't know if that makes sense or not. Yeah. Yeah. I was trying to get to where there's action instead of just the words. And so I was curious where you're, where you're going with that. That's what I was Yeah, so, I mean, one way that I would take it is if I encounter a homeless guy who has a court date down the road, um, like, I, I just know this guy probably has no knowledge of how to get help, and he doesn't have the finances to secure the kind of help that he probably needs. But what I can at least do is say, hey, I have our county community resource handbook that has all the lines for legal help and you can use my phone and I'll put you on speakerphone and I'll say, Hey, my name's Aaron. I'm a pastor at resurrection church and I'm working with this guy. Who can we talk to? You know, I found, you know, this past week was doing that not for legal fees, but for medical transportation. And there were a couple times where he would just dial and call and I, it seemed like anytime I would introduce myself as a pastor helping somebody, the people on the other end of the line were a lot more compliant and helpful. But when I was sitting there just listening, because I was taking care of something else, and he would dial in and call, it was like he would not get anywhere. So I think 
like there is a, a way that we can help where we are at, even in small ways that might get somebody where they need to go. So, so my, I'm not pushing for like, Hey, let's raise up certain politicians or let's take large social action, but let's take action wherever we encounter somebody. Right. More, more of make a difference of when you encounter it in your life, do something about it instead of ignoring it and walking by it instead of just banging the drum of trying, like you said, trying to get some political person voted in that apparently is going to care about it. But it's like that usually just turns out to be a bunch of noise and wasted time. Whereas if you take personal time to just help one person, that's probably if everybody did that, everybody would be helped way more than looking to a political figure. Yeah, exactly. And I'm about to make a lot of generalizations. And as one of my professors says, generalizations are almost always helpful and almost always wrong. So hopefully this will be more helpful than wrong. But but I would say that um, there are people who would tend to be identifying as Democrats who are saying, let's let's solve the poor problem through policies and political figures. And a ton of money goes into rate campaigns and a ton of energy in vitriol goes into this. And often those people are concerned about other things that might be really detrimental to things that God desires. Um, and then on the other side, I think people who tend to vote Republican also tend to just blame the poor or, um, you know, say, let's help ourselves. Cause if we can help ourselves, then everyone else will get helped a little bit as well. You know, there's a trickle down effect of help. And, um, I, th- I think in the end, what happens is very little help actually comes, you know, there, there's probably some rightness in both of w- what those people are doing through policies and distribution of wealth. And then other people saying, let's build wealth and it will trickle down. Maybe, maybe there's, those are more compatible than they look like. But I think ultimately what Christians can tend to do is think I've done my part by casting a vote for whichever strategy I think is going to work. And now I feel good. Or even I wrote a check and sent it over to some organization and now it's done. But then when we encounter somebody, um, we're like, well, I don't want to give them money because I know they'll just go over to Total Wine and, and buy some alcohol, or um, I don't want to talk to them or whatever, instead of actually engaging with them and figuring out, okay, what what is the most beneficial thing for this person right now? And I think that's something I've been trying to figure out is how, how do we do that? I have more opportunities than a lot of people because people just show up at our church door. But like this week it was, okay, this guy needs his medication. Um, he has it medical assistance. So I know that we can call their transportation and pick, get a ride for him to get picked up from here to go get his prescription. And then, you know, I don't know what will happen next, but, but you see what I mean? Like there are actual things we can do to help, um, that are more helpful than a vote. I think, I think this, like this text would call us to do something, not just to say something. Yeah. And I think like this is somewhat unpopular because if if you're like, well, I vote Democratic because I really love love the poor, or if you're like, oh, well, I vote Republican because I think that's the best way to help the poor, like I I think the saying these things those that's the least significant thing you'll do to help the poor doesn't sound 
very appetizing or appealing to those people. Uh, and But I think that's what we have to say is God calls us to take up responsibility the, the closer proximity we have to somebody. So when we encounter people, we should do something about it, even if it's inconvenient for us. Now, sometimes we'll encounter people and realize, okay, this is a huckster. This is a scammer. Uh, the most helpful thing I can do to this person is to tell them, I'm not going to give you money and I'll, we want to offer you help, but you've got to actually like participate in it. So you've, you've got to follow up on this form you need to fill out to get housing, you know, and like there are, are on 42, Kenny Road 42, people who don't need help who are holding up signs saying they need help, but that's not the case with everyone we run into. Yeah. And you can't help somebody that doesn't want to be helped. Like you said, if they're just kind of scamming, mm-hmm. like that goes for any area of life. If somebody doesn't want to be helped. Yeah. There's sometimes we luck. can give up on helping someone too early. You yeah. know, that's, that's the other thing. It's like, Oh, they said they didn't really want help when they actually need it. And, um, we can relieve ourselves of responsibility too early. Yeah. I think voting is the least thing we can do like the least helpful, not that we shouldn't do it, but it's like there's been political parties and politicians for a few hundred years now and there's still lots of poor people. So they're obviously not fixing it. Well, yeah. And I, you know, you kind of wonder, like, I don't know how much the average person candidate raises for a different, you know, like a Senator raises for their campaigning, but imagine if they're like, you know what? I know I'm not going to get a lot done in office let me just use my influence and raise up all this money and then like put it in a trust that can disperse it through an organization. Like it seems like that would be way better than any policy that person's ever going to write. I I don't know. I'm getting a little too off script here, but you look uncomfortable AJ. So I feel like I should stop saying, <laughs> saying these things. All, all I'm saying is I think it's very easy for us to assuage any feeling of responsibility for the poor by casting a vote instead of actually engaging with the poor. But as I was reading Isaiah over and over again, it seems like God has a heart for the poor. Anything else you guys wanted to talk about from Isaiah? Yeah. One thing um, I was a little bit curious about in Isaiah 20, he's, uh, he's wandered around in the buff for the Lord. I was thinking about you as I was so, reading this chapter. Were you thinking about me in the buff or just <laughs> thinking about me? <laughs> no, not oh, okay. uh, imagining you. I was just, well, I was imagining you reading this text and making some notes, <laughs> um, particularly if you were reading it in the CSB because of the word buttocks yeah. and the fact that, um, you know, he's instructed to hide his underwear um, and lose his sandals. Yeah. Now, and it says for three years, which I was like three years long time. I looked at the footnotes and they said it could have been intermittent um, streak protesting for the Lord. I don't know what you would call it. And look, I'm not trying to get silly with it and be like, whoa, we should wander around naked for the Lord. But back in the day, they they did extreme things, extreme symbolism things. You know what I mean? And I think there's, I think, I think there's something to be gained by that. I think that people need to, in a right way, do that more. Don't you think? 
Sorry. You're not listening. You found your funny I, verse. I was reading in Jeremiah this past week, mm-hmm. and uh. this is what it says in Jeremiah 13.1. This is what the Lord said to me. Go and buy yourself a linen undergarment and put it on, but do not put it in water. So I brought underwear as the Lord instructed me and put it on. Then the word of the Lord came to me a second time. Take the underwear that you are wearing and go at once to the Euphrates and hide it in a rocky crevice. So I went and hid it by the Euphrates as the Lord commanded me. A long time later, the Lord said to me, go at once to the Euphrates and get the underwear that I commanded you to hide there. So I went to the Euphrates and dug up the underwear and got it from the place where I had hidden it, but it was ruined. Long line of no use at all. I mean, that's interesting. Why on earth would that happen? Um, Because uh, just like this, I will ruin the great pride of both Judah and Jerusalem. Uh-huh. There'll be like underwear that was hidden in a rocky crevice for a long time. Pride. Pride again. Pride. Yeah. That's what I'm telling you. It's a major theme. Just as underwear clings to one's waist, so I fasten the whole house of Israel and of Judah to me. Hmm. This is the Lord's declaration, so that they might be my people for my fame, praise, and glory, but they would not obey. God made Israel his underwear. I haven't thought about it that but i wonder if there's a connection in first corinthians when paul's talking about the lesser body parts that we cover and they get greater glory and honor uh greater honor not greater glory um that's interesting i wonder if there's any connection there i don't know what it is but i've never thought about that picture of israel as god's underwear that is that is a weird it, like israel's god's bride sure really easy to to think about Israel's God's underwear. That's a harder uh, thing to think about, which we will again in Jeremiah 13. Mm. But um, yeah, weird. And back right. to what you were saying. Well, I feel uh, like we do live I mean, in extreme compared to the way the world is living. That, and Wait, say that again. I feel like the way that Christians are called to live is extreme compared to the way the world lives. You know, what yeah. we value and what... We spend our time and energy and money doing, and God told Isaiah to do this directly. So right, it's a little and bit he didn't tell but, everybody to do this. Yeah, it wasn't right, all of Israel? Right, right, streak, right. Streak protest. Exactly, which is why you know, like I said, I'm not trying to get silly and say that we should do this, but it was an extreme thing that was commanded from God, and you know, it gave Isaiah an opportunity to be obedient or not, and he was obedient, mm-hmm. but. There, there are even more um, like kind of standard things, like if somebody was mourning or something and they put on sackcloth and what they put ashes on their head or something, like that was somewhat common-ish, it seems like. Mm-hmm. Stuff like that comes up somewhat frequently. And something even like uh, like fasting is you know, another thing where it's like out of the ordinary. You wouldn't normally do this. You do it with a real purpose. Uh, you know, it's symbolic, but it's still like a physical thing you're doing. I don't know. I just think, I think that done in the right way, there's a lot of value to that stuff. If if you're just yeah. feeling like, I feel so intense about this. I feel so dependent on God. I'll just do anything I can to call out to him or devote myself to him. Like I'll do anything. And then you just kind of you know, not not in a dumb way, but you can do symbolic things to just show that, oh, like I'm, I I want to 
seek the Lord, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Rather yeah. than just casually, you know, sitting on the couch, say a prayer, and then go about your everyday life. Like, it, it adds a lot of weight and gravity to it. Yeah, yeah. And I think in this case, of course, it's something that Isaiah didn't feel like doing. So right. it's not just when, oh, I really feel like I love God or I really want God or something like that. Sometimes we're called to do those things when we don't feel like it at all. But this gets into what we talked about in that Bible class on worship and the embodied nature of worship and how our bodies matter and what we do with them matter. Um, so I think what you're saying, if we're if we're like, man, I'm I am humbled before the Lord and I need to repent of this, and we sit on our couch and say our quick prayer of repentance and then go about our day, that that does something very different to us and for us than like a physical posture of humility where we lay face down on the floor and repent before the Lord. Like there, there's something that's humiliating about that, um, that you don't experience. So you can't express fully the humility of repentance when you're like, oh, I'm praying this prayer of repentance as I'm running out the door you, I think yeah. that's kind of what you're getting at a little bit. No, exactly. And like, I, I won't, like you said, I've done some stuff like that. Cause I've just felt like compelled to where like, you're not just sitting there and say a quick prayer, but you do other things where it's like, man, I'm going to do whatever I can to get myself in the most humble posture that I can conceive of right now in the privacy of my own home. Like, I think there's value to that. Yeah, I distinctly remember when I was first like thinking about some of this embodied nature of our worship and communication. I was like, man, I had been thinking about it, and I I laid on my face, like on the floor, like praying to the Lord, and I was like, I just feel like an idiot, like doing this right now. And I was about to just like get up, but it was like, well, maybe there's that's like kind of the point too, is like this bodily expression does communicate who I am in front of the Lord. And I hate feeling like that, like I'm an idiot. I hate feeling humiliated, but there's a rightness to that. I think there's a, like a wrongness to it where maybe we could just chase a feeling and somehow we can make our bodily posture all about us. Like we know that we feel like an idiot <clears throat> when we pray before the Lord by laying laying down or kneeling or something. Um, and we like to berate ourselves and, and just we like to feel bad because we're conservative Christians and we like to feel bad about everything. So we like chase kind of a spiritual high through feeling bad. So there's I think there's a wrong way to take this, but there's probably a right recognition that we fail to involve all of ourselves in our relationship before the Lord, and we make it just a mental thing where we just think a prayer. We don't actually um, express prayer in our body. It's so hard to talk about it and not have it come across the wrong way. Because like, I think that there's just more of a richness that can be experienced if it's done in the right way when you incorporate physical posture or something of the sort. Again, if you're doing it, whatever, with the wrong thoughts or the wrong motives or this side or the other, like then it's going to be super pointless. But if it, if you feel compelled out of just genuine 
dedication and need for the Lord in that moment. And you just feel like you have to put yourself in a posture that you otherwise normally wouldn't, then I think that's incredibly valuable. But I don't know. I feel like it's nuanced in a weird way for, for it to not come across wrong. Well, yeah, because we've all experienced or seen situations where it becomes all about a person. Right. And it doesn't even become about a person. It was just always about that person trying to get attention to themselves maybe, or just them like being weird, honestly. Which is I like Which is why I think that so much of this should just be done completely in private around absolutely nobody else. It's just between you and God. You know what I mean? And not again, not that it's wrong to do something in public, but mm-hmm. it just it gets so weird and people are like, "Well, what's their motive? What is he thinking? Is he just well, draw, drawing attention to himself? I don't know." And then and then it's just distracting in a million different ways that are all wrong. Yeah, and I think this is a problem that in the public sphere that we moderns have way more than Israel ever would have had because they had worship leaders giving them instructions to do things bodily. So you think of like, what is it? Psalm 42 that's telling them clap your hands. You know, like there are instructions for bodily expression that are given during the worship setting. So it's not you choosing to raise up your hands. It's you responding to the call of the worship leader to raise your hands. It's not, and we have this somewhat like when we're told to stand, when we sing, well, we all do that and we can sing better with our full lung capacity and we're following that instruction. Um, Sometimes, you know, I've been in settings where we're praying for somebody and the, the leader will say, please lift your hand out towards this person as we pray. And it's not me making this decision to express it bodily, but it's us as a community doing this. And I think there's something good about that where we're not saying, I'm going to make the choice of how to express myself. Instead, we as a congregation are going to involve the whole of us in this moment. Uh, Where at home, it is more of a self-expression because it's individual worship. It's not corporate worship. Yeah, I think that's good. Yeah, and some of this expression is personality constrained or animated, right? You know, like I think when I get excited about something, I'm not the kind of guy who's usually like jumping up and down about it. But there are some people who are like that. And so, you know, for expressions of humility, you know, or joy, different people might find different bodily expressions more within their natural capacity. Uh, that doesn't mean we shouldn't ever be pushed beyond what our natural inclination would be, but it does also help us when we look at other people who have different inclinations not to interpret their action or lack of it in a particular way. Um, someone with a big personality might be a lot more expressive on these things where someone else, you know, like me, has his hands in his pockets. I feel like I filled in all the gaps with the structure that should give us some guidance as we continue to read, but there may be more to discuss in the coming weeks. <laughs> it's a good time up in here discussing, discussing <laughs> Galatians. That's not easy to say. Discussing Galatians. All right, you nailed it. Thank you. I've messed up pronunciations lately. 
I don't know that that fits what we're doing. <clears throat> what is that song? Celebration. Celebration. Okay. Okay. Celebrate good times. No, that does not work for our, for our Galatians. No. Well, we've read a lot of judgment oracle type literature in Isaiah. And speaking of judgment, as we turn to the book of Galatians, it seems like Paul is casting some judgment. And um, AJ, you seem like you had some ideas you wanted to chase in this letter. I just wanted to start talking about why Paul wrote the letter to these churches or these people in Galatia. It seems like there were false teachers that were presenting false teaching like another, I think he calls it another gospel. And so part of the letter is to clarify what the gospel is or the you know call the churches back to the gospel that Paul had had taught to them. Is that is that right? Does that sound is there more to the book? Would you like to add to that? I have never preached or taught through Galatians, so I have only limited commentary on it. But it does seem to me that there are Christians who um, are encountering false teachers. I don't know the identity of these false teachers. To me, it seems like they're going to be teaching something like you need to uh, adopt the practices of Judaism to be good Christians. And it seems like that's probably what animates Paul's rebuke of Peter, because it probably touches on some of this false teaching, this other gospel, this different uh, declaration about who Jesus is and what he's done. So I I don't know the full details here. I do think this is probably the first letter that Paul wrote that's in our New Testament. I believe that's the case. Uh, It's earlier on, but he definitely goes to town throwing down on any departure from salvation through faith in Christ alone. And he makes clear that that does not mean that you don't live like Christ would want you to live but it does mean that you shouldn't add anything to Jesus, no other requirement, whatever these false teachers were adding. Um, And then it seems like he's also really concerned for Jews and Gentiles to come together, uh, to find unity in Christ, to walk by the Spirit. Um, I think all of these things are at play, but I don't know everything that would be involved in this. I, I think my final comment related to these issues is that in chapter 6, verse 16, after he's urged people to care about one another in these exhortations, he wishes the peace and mercy of God to come to the Israel of God. So it seems like the false teaching may have uh, created further division between Jew and Gentile. And here he's saying, no, together in Christ, you are together the Israel of God. Do you think that Peter got a chance to read this letter? Do you think he was upset that Paul used him as an example? You know, in I one don't, of his stories. I don't think I mean Peter personality-wise maybe was initially, we could say, but in his letters he talks about how Paul is writing things that are scripture and that are hard to understand. So maybe he maybe he's like saying that cynically and it's not the way that we've always taken it. I just don't understand why Paul threw me under the bus exactly. here. 
I don't know. I th- I think probably Peter would be like, you know what, Paul was right, and um, humility, not pride. I mean, he does in First Peter especially really lean into the call to humble ourselves before God. So that could be the case. Do you think Peter was mad about that? What do you think? I think so. Okay. He probably was just for a little bit and then was like, no, I think, you know, and then exactly what Aaron said. Ah, Paul's right. Made a bad call, but. Do you think he tried to cut Paul's ear off with a sword? I don't think so. Probably not. It seems like that wouldn't be fitting with an apostle of the Lord Jesus. Amen. I'm going to sound like a broken record here, but it just sounds like more and more every time we read a New Testament letter, there's just so many references to the Old Testament. And it's not that I didn't notice it before, but it seems like it's just so important to have an understanding of the Old Testament, at least the Pentateuch, to understand at all what these authors are writing about. And wouldn't that just fly in the face of the people that say that we don't need the Old Testament or it's irrelevant or this side or the other? Absolutely, Matthew. Just smack them. Yeah. Again, Matthew, you always are impressing me every week that goes by. Like I, you, you know, maybe this shouldn't be on the podcast, but I really think your reading through the Bible is doing a ton for you. And the way that you put things together with your natural intellect and curiosity paired with applying it to the Bible, I just think, man, keep, keep studying the Bible. And I just want to keep talking about the Bible with you, but you're exactly right. People will say, we don't need the Old Testament. So um, Andy Stanley, uh, let's unhitch the Old Testament. We don't need it anymore. All we need is the resurrection. Well, these are these things are problematic, and I think that they're inseparable from this very revivalistic, Americanized edition of the gospel that's just about Jesus saving you from hell. Well, that's not what the gospel is. The gospel is about King Jesus, who is the climax and fulfillment of Israel's story, which is why over and over again, uh, the apostles have to refer to the Old Testament, because without it, Jesus doesn't make sense. I like his dad, though. Is that right? Old Chuck? Yeah, Charles. You know, I've never... Is that really his dad? Yeah. yeah. I've never really listened to his dad, but um, oh. I'm sure he's fine. He's we, pretty solid. We had it on all the time at home. Charles no way. Stanley? Yeah. yeah. Sweet. I've never listened to anything he said, but I... Could be worse that thing. Worse people listen to, probably. That's the way I think of it. Yep. Let's not name names, yeah, but we could name true. names. I don't have this worked out exactly, but... Just start talking and yeah. it'll come. So in chapter five, we've got the fruit of the spirit. So I was thinking, this sounds like a nice little list that I can sit and apply or, or at least meditate on and think about. So I wrote out the fruit of the spirit and put on a little note card and put it on my desk. And I was just thinking, about well, those are good things, but man, I, how, do, how do I apply this to my life? And then I just kept reading in Galatians. And what I did find interesting was Paul starts calling us, you know, God's calling us to to do things. And it seems like we need to be mature Christians who live out the fruit of the Spirit to actually do, to be the types of people who can do what we're being called to do. So as an example, one is restore the brother with gentleness when they fall away or when they're in the wrong. And it takes a mature type of Christian who has been living in the fruit, you know, walking by the Spirit to be able to, you know, do some of these things that we're called to in chapter 6 specifically. Um, even, you know, reaping these spiritual benefits, we need to be the type of people that call that 
Paul and God are calling us to. And I kind of just clutched on to the fruit of the Spirit as just a nice little list of, you know, obviously there's there's more to it. But it seemed like it's just in the flow of Galatians, you hit that, and then there's, what are you looking at me for? What is this? No, you're doing great. So you I were d- talking, so both of us naturally were looking at you. You guys were shocked because I actually was talking, and you're like, what's going on here? I was actually trying to out-posture Aaron so I could speak first after you, and then things got weird. That's fine, dude. Just raise your hand. Oh, okay. So I know it's not a connection. It's Some of the comments I've made before are just kind of like, this, of course, makes sense, but I wanted to point it out because it clicked to me that you must do these things. to. You can't just pull... You can't just read chapter six in isolation, I guess is my point. You yeah. need to be, okay, this type of person to be able to do, you know, if you're sad, like, oh, I don't know how to do this, or I'm not this type of person, say, well, maybe you need to, to back up. Maybe you need to start start at step one instead of yeah. that Dude, type of... Oh, can I just insert oh, this, oh, I know you're gonna this word of affirmation oh. that could be oh. cut off the podcast? No, we'll cut it, and then you can be the first. That That <laughs> I think reading through the Bible is good for you. Because you're talking about context and like putting things together and getting things in the right arrangement. At the beginning of everything you said, I'll be honest, I zoned out for a second. What'd you say you put on a note card? I've done that before too. Uh, in chapter five, did I say chapter four? No, you said five. I did. Okay. You're right on. Fruit of the Spirit. Let me read what the NLT has. But the Holy Spirit produces this, in this is verse 22, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Okay, I'm reading this out of context, but. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Yes. The fruit of the Spirit. So that's against the results of the sinful nature, which are listed in a couple verses before that. Okay. There's the context. Okay. So I'm not sure I followed everything you said, but I think what you said was good Probably because it was a little disjointed, but I think I got there eventually. But I want to say that we need to just follow the argument and just understand that I was liking a lot of what I was reading in chapter six. That's probably where I should have started. So you're I connecting six to five. Six to what's before that. I know I felt like fruit of the spirit was important, but I didn't necessarily know how to apply that. Mm. And then I kept reading and I was, oh, I also, I need to be doing this stuff. But it seems like that stuff flows out of the fruit of the spirit too. Like those are the fruit, right? Right. Okay. And that's that's what I was going to say because I thought... I thought about that a decent amount because I remember way back when, when I was in college, it's like, all right, I need to be a better person. Let's write the fruit of the spirit on a thing and stick it on my board. And it's like, I need to try to do those things more. And then it, nothing happens. Uh, Cause that's like, I, th- I kind of realized I'm like, well, that's a really stupid wrong approach. Thinking about it more. And even just the words that are used, it's fruit of the spirit. And as I thought about it more, it's like, well, if you want to bear these good things as fruit, you have to be healthy and connected to God to be the healthy, whatever plant, tree, vine, whatever. If you want to bear good fruit, you have to be a healthy plant and to be a healthy plant, you have to be connected to God and like, have that be your main focus. And then, as a result of that, these fruits just kind of, you know, come from that, come from being grounded in the Lord. That's the way I thought about it. You're exactly right. The fruit of the Spirit is not a checklist to complete, 
but the evidence that you're walking by the Spirit. So earlier in chapter 5, he told people that the whole law is fulfilled in this one statement, love your neighbor as yourself, but you're biting and devouring one another. You're not fulfilling the law. So then the question is, how do we fulfill the law? How do we fulfill the law to love? Well, what's the first part of the fruit of the Spirit? It's love. So it's actually not you by yourself, but you animated and driven and in submission to the Holy Spirit that allows you to fulfill the law. You know, against this, there is no law. It's the fulfillment of the law. Um, So you're right. Everything in chapter six that we're supposed to do and in the whole letter is accomplished through the empowerment of the spirit. So we need to walk according to the spirit. Um, Yeah, I think you guys are exactly right. I think another thing in chapter six that kind of relates to something that you said, Aaron, was, you know, when you said not to give up on someone too soon when either you're calling them to change or you expect some type of result, that does seem to be what is being said in verse nine of chapter six about not being tired, about doing good and um, not being impatient for the harvest of investing, you know, in spiritual blessings. So, yeah, exactly. You know, so don't be tired. Don't weary of doing good because you'll reap at the proper time if you don't give up. So as you have opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. So yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think there are maybe a couple context things I, I want to look into. For example, let the one who has taught the word share all his good things with the teacher. You know, it's like, okay, what's, I'm not quite sure what's going on there, but so can we apply that directly to helping a, a poor person? I don't I don't know, but I think at least the right idea is there that often when we sow the good towards others, we can't see the fruit of that right away. But that doesn't mean we should give up on it. It would be like putting a seed in a pot in the spring and then the next day being like, how come there's no plant here with fruit on it? I'm going to just throw this whole thing away. It's like, well, if you had just like kept waiting, like it would have come, but you got rid of it. So you don't get to share in its blessing because you gave up. As we wrap up today's episode, let's leave with the encouragement of Galatians 5, 25. Since we are living by the spirit, let us follow the spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Thank you for joining us. This is the Resurrection Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about all things Resurrection Church, you can visit our website, resurrectionmn.org.